Hey guys, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey everybody, welcome back to Medicus. In today's episode, we sat down with Dr. Timothy Buckley, a clinical psychiatrist at the Edward Hines VA Hospital. In our episode, we dive into the topic of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, a subject that gets more and more attention each day because the emerging research is just so exciting. As just an example, a recent study from Johns Hopkins investigated the use of psilocybin and smoking cessation. They combined psilocybin and cognitive behavioral therapy and found that this combo resulted in 80% of their study participants being able to quit smoking and remain smoke-free even when they followed up 16 months later. And just to give a comparison, the current FDA-approved therapies for smoking cessation is Wellbutrin, or Bupropion, and Shantex, otherwise known as Varenicline, which at best, these compounds show a 35% success rate. Now, admittedly, the study from Johns Hopkins was a preliminary study, which means that the sample size was small, but the emerging data really speaks for the need for greater investigation. Before we hop into our discussion, we wanted to make sure that our listeners understand that this episode is intended to be for a general informational purpose only, and is not to be interpreted as an endorsement for use. Dr. Buckley's discussion today is not meant to represent the views or policy of the VA hospital system but are rather an expression of his own academic interest in this evolving therapeutic modality. Furthermore, listeners should be aware that the inappropriate use of these compounds carry real consequences, including both the potential for physiologic harm as well as the potential legal ramifications, as these substances are currently considered Schedule One drugs by the DEA. Now, with that said, please enjoy this discussion with Dr. Timothy Buckley. Cool. All right. So... Um, welcome back to Medicus. We're excited today. We've got a pretty cool topic, something that I've been very excited about. And I think uh, if you listen to the news, there's a lot of interest around today's subject. Um, but before we get started, before we introduce our guest, we actually have a new host today. And so we wanted to also do just kind of a brief introduction. So we wanted to turn the time over to Emily. Hi, my name's Emily. I am an M1 at Loyola. And I studied um, psychology at Cornell, where I graduated in 2017 before starting medical school. And so I'm really interested in having our guest on today for this topic and really excited about joining the Medicus team. So first off, we always love to get a little bit of background um, for our listeners. So Dr. Buckley, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I took a sort of a non-traditional uh, path to medicine. Uh, I was actually an English major uh, in college, and I was interested in in writing and um, sort of a romantic and young romantic. And it, that was actually my senior year of college where some things, I was introduced to some topics that sort of switched, were a, a pivot point in my life. And um, it, it's kind of... Is pertinent to the topic today. Yeah. So there was a shift from sort of literature and writing towards mm-hmm. the sciences, psychology, um, deeper questions about the human condition, new new paradigms in the sciences. I was just I was just sort of steeped in all of that at the time. So, mm-hmm. but then eventually, so I went into social work for about eight years, oh, um, wow. wanting to get a feel for psychology, thinking that maybe that was something I wanted to pursue. Um, I explored speech pathology a little bit along the way. And at one point, as I was approaching the age of 30, I decided I needed to 
decided what I wanted to do and I grew up. So I um, decided to go back to medical school. Uh, and then it was during medical school, I, w- I was kind of flip-flopping back and forth between, you know, do I want to go back to this original passion for studying the human condition, mm-hmm. the psyche, mm-hmm. um, or do I need a change of pace? So I really struggled with the choice between psychiatry and internal medicine. And it essentially came down to a coin flip. Mm-hmm. on that last day when you pretty much have to make a decision. <laughs> and I think, you know, my, my passions and my academic interests ultimately pulled me back and said, you know, psychiatry will probably fit my, my interests better in the long run. So that's, that's yeah. pretty interesting. I'm, I'm curious as to um, that transition then later on in life. Because, I mean, you mentioned you did social work. How, what was the transition like? Was it pretty easy switching it, to medical school? Back into medicine, it was yeah. hard because, uh, you know, you're 30, you, you've, um, you've matured somewhat at that point, and, you, you know, and, and I had to go back and sit through, you know, freshman chemistry mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. sit, and sit, <laughs> sit next to these the young yeah. yeah, students. It's not the and, most fun class. <laughs> no, it's, the process, it was incredibly humbling, but I was in it for the long haul. Yeah, I had made mm-hmm. my decision. That was the path. I was committed. And so I just, there was, there was only one way to go at that point. So, yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, your background in those diverse disciplines gave you more insight and breadth of experience to draw from going into medical school and medicine. Yeah, Yeah, it definitely, it definitely did. It helped, especially having been a social worker. Mm -hmm. And um, at, at that, you know, eight years of social work really preps you for, you know, how you deal with people. Right. Uh, colleagues, patients, whatever. Uh, you see, I had seen quite a bit in social work from a managerial standpoint and from dealing with, you know, pretty severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I worked my way up from the bottom. So in the early days, I was, I was doing it all. I was feeding. I was cleaning up messes. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, taking care of some very severely developmentally disabled adults and, yeah, in the trenches, so to speak. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on today was because you were pointed out to us through a resident. I don't know if I should give names or anything like that. Uh, you can you go back and find them later. Yeah. Um, so first off, they recommended you just because you're just fantastic to talk about a lot of the new modalities that are coming out. In particular, one that I've been kind of interested in is the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And mm-hmm. then obviously there are a couple of other ones that are um, – kind of some of them it sounds like they've been here for a while but we just are kind of unknown or under the radar but i'm curious as to what was your motivation to be passionate about this and the reason why i asked this is because having gone through my psych rotation i didn't find that every physician that i rotated with had the same enthusiasm as others you know that primarily comes from a fundamental skepticism of psychiatry from day one Mm -hmm. so i didn't you know, the, so maybe the more traditional route in is you go to medical school, you're not sure what you want to do, you kind of see the array of fields, and then you end up picking psychiatry for any number of any reasons. It, 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 it resonates with you at that point. But for me, I was drawn to more to, again, psychology. I was, I was, a, I was a human. I was, a, I was in the human, uh, humanist, uh, you know, looking at the kind of the you know when you're a writer and you're and you're and you're studying literature you're looking deeply into the human condition mm-hmm. and asking big philosophical questions and so that's where i was coming from mm-hmm. and so to go from that into the biological psychiatric, psychiatric model which is in the, in this day and age very much about drugs mm-hmm. I, I was very skeptical which is what made the decision that in medical school so difficult Despite my interest, I, I didn't know if I wanted to sit around prescribing SSRIs. You know, decent decent drugs and decent treat, treatments, but not what I was really right. passionate about. So um, 
that's where that that's where that came from. So then, I, then naturally, that set the stage for me to want to glom onto any novel treatment that was not just giving somebody a pill every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like um, yeah, that was kind of my experience as well when I was going through my rotation. That I felt like obviously like SSRIs, mm-hmm. they definitely have their place. But there was to me, it really kind of seems like there needed needs to be newer explorations, new discoveries. I think it's Michael Pollan who he just mm-hmm. recently wrote a book that kind of talks about his experience with psychedelics, but he 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 discusses how at least in psychology there hasn't been that many new and novel innovations in terms of drug therapies in maybe like the last 50-60 years. Mm-hmm. And so it, this this is kind of a, an exciting time because I feel like there's definitely a, a lot of potential for for change. Which ones are you maybe most excited about? What are kind of the, the things that you're... Yeah, uh, I mean, I th- probably... I'm very excited about both TMS, uh, transcranial magnetic, mm-hmm. magnetic stimulation, and psychedelics. I'm probably, to this day, still most excited about psychedelics. Okay. Um, because, maybe be- simply because it's been a long-term interest of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of part of the many things that I was kind of, uh, the literature that I was steeped in mm-hmm. at, the, at that time, kind of just post-college. And I maintained that interest over the years because it, it held my interest because I think there's something really critical and, and uh, fundamental that both as um, a medical community but also as a society that we, mm-hmm. there's a message in, there's a message in that initial psych- psychedelic movement, uh, that in, uh, initial round of research back in the back in the 60s and 70s. There's a profound message back there that I think then we buried mm-hmm. uh, with politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that message resonated with the other topics that I was interested in at that time, which were things like systems theory, mm-hmm. sciences of complexity, all these um, uh, physics, the new physics, so all these sort of, w- which are all similar in the sense that they're all very cutting edge mm-hmm. um, movements and paradigms in science that we have continued to struggle to wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. And there are some commonalities and themes between all of those, the psychedelics, compl- sciences of complexity, which are, again, very difficult to study, and as well as the new physics, which, you know, is 100 years old now, and we're still struggling to wrap our heads around what it actually means. Yeah. So we're wondering why you think it's so important that psychedelics be studied as treatment for mental health issues in today's society in light of everything you've talked about so far, and why you think it's so important that society work to bring changes to the way mental health issues are treated and managed in today's landscape of medicine. Yeah, so maybe the simplest answer to that, and I think maybe the least interesting answer to that, is you can look at the scientific studies. You can look at the old literature on psychedelics from the 60s. There's mm-hmm. over a 1,000 papers on psychedelics back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look at the results back then, and they're pretty compelling across a pretty wide array of dis- disorders. And then you can look at the new literature, which is sort of a, a, more, rigorous, a more rigorous scientific method. Mm-hmm. But they're coming up with equally dramatic Uh, results. So that's a simple answer, and it's somewhat quantitative. So uh, from at least these initial studies, it appears that these substances could be significantly more effective than our current treatments Mm -hmm. for some things. Mm -hmm. And we have to always be cautious with Mm -hmm. psychedelics. We are in this very exciting phase, and uh, we have to, as as with all new treatments, we have to guard against the the panacea idea. I think Definitely. we necessarily have to kind of go through that phase, but we have to be sort of conscious of it and kind of be careful. Um, so, so that being said, that's the short answer to why we need to study it. To me, because of my background and my interests, 
going way back 25 years and based not only in, in psychiatry or psychology, but also in a larger view of the sciences, paradigms in the sciences that I, I feel are shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also societal questions. Who, who, who are we as a society? Where in the history of the world, how can we characterize uh, at least Western world? Mm-hmm. And if you th- want to think of there being a Western mind or, or um, a Western personality or, or, or a character, we need to be able to see ourselves clearly in the trajectory of history. And if we don't see ourselves that way, then, we're, then we're, when we don't fully understand ourselves. And so you can look at sort of an, uh, an evolutionary psychology and a historical psychology, and if you do that and you spend some time with it, you can start to understand the, the overarching themes in psychopathology, again, in, if not the Western world, in the whole world. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Western culture has spread back to the Eastern uh, world, and they're dealing with a lot of the same issues that we're dealing with, just in a slightly more delayed fashion. But you know, the, break, the breakdown of, uh, of common ethos, mm-hmm. um, the breakdown of the family structure, the breakdown of tradition, mm-hmm. sort of it's a, it's a chaotic time. Um, and a lot more alienation uh, because of those factors, a lot more uncertainty about the future, mm-hmm. sort of a speeding up of change, which is, ext- I think, very stressful for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these factors lead into this, the, these these things that I think it, that we don't look at enough in psychiatry. We we look at the DSM five now, and <clears throat> if we look at our our nosology, our nosology being how we carve up the diagnoses and mm-hmm. where we delineate them. Um, we've, we've kind of adopted this wholesale from uh, the recent past, but um, I don't know how well that really looks at the pathologies of the greater culture mm-hmm. and. And for historical reasons, and also things that I've alluded to, um, psychedelics seem to speak to that um, more so than any other treatment that I'm aware of, except for maybe psychoanalysis and mm-hmm. some of the other psychotherapies. So That's interesting. Now, I think that at least around the topic of psychedelics, I think there's kind of a half a healthy level of skepticism. And maybe I can just mm-hmm. use myself as an example, right? Like I'm coming from my own personal background. I'm a very conservative Christian. Um, I grew up in the D.A.R.E. era, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of grew up avoiding all drugs. In fact, in my own life, I was kind of always like on the fence with everything. All my friends were definitely experimenting. I never experimented with anything. And then in high school, I uh, had an experience. I actually had one of my close friends who um, killed himself by suicide. And the day after it happened, um, so that his mother didn't have to go into the room and clean up belongings, my friends and I went in there and there was drug paraphernalia all over. And so for me, mm-hmm. like I came from a background that was very biased against this. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the you mentioned a lot of the studies that had just have had profound, profound results. And I had my own experience where after reading some of the, the studies where I was like, this is something that needs to be examined more closely. And so I'm curious as to what was kind of that aha moment for you? Um, you know, it's, I, I have to recollect 25 years ago, so <laughs> it's not specific to the psychedelics. It's hard to remember where I segued into that. Mm-hmm. But I had been reading a lot of books back then about like comparative mythology. Mm-hmm. Joseph, people like Joseph Campbell, obviously uh-huh. very popular in the literature, but really just really good stuff. The, actually, the big segue, English for me, 
in college was because I was taking a Shakespeare course. And the professor had as our primary text a book by Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Jung was, of course, one of the great uh, kind of deep-diving, psycho, psychodynamic theorists of his time. And he was very closely allied with Freud, but he kind of split from Freud. And to me, Jung was an eye-opener. Jung was, um, I was absolutely blown away by Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, and I steeped myself in all of his works, and he was pretty prolific. And he, and he wasn't an easy read either. But I found his, I, I like to characterize him as sort of the, archaeolo- the archaeologist of the soul. Because mm-hmm. he, in a very non-dogmatic way, much less sort of dogmatic than, than Freud, mm-hmm. sort of just, uh, he called himself an empiricist too. And, and he dove into the material that the psyche gave us. And the psyche gives us, its, gives us its material through mythology, through religion, through dreams, through the content of, of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and he examined all of that in a very objective way and simply looked for patterns. And he said, what is this stuff and where is it coming from? And he saw, again, as, as with comparative mythology, all of the commonalities, the really uncanny uh, commonalities between you know, myth and, and, and dreams mm-hmm. and, and all this. And um, so, and then and out of that, he formulated his, his ideas about the collective unconscious and the archetypes and all this. And as an English major who was sort of kind of interested in, you know, the deep psyche and the soul and, mm-hmm. and, and what's, um, what's, what motivates people and what drives people and what's love about and all this stuff, to see that there was this somewhat systematic mm-hmm. uh, approach that kind of discovered this rich world that had a hierarchy and it had it had these forms that were not arbitrary right, right. Um, you look at creation myths across the world and they have a lot of the same elements no matter where you look at them so it, it, it told me that in the in the psyche it, the, the unconscious if you will which is sort of a kind of a reified notion but I still think we have to talk about it in those terms it's not the content is is deep and it's rich and it's not arbitrary mm-hmm. it's sort of it's sort of our psychological genetics in a way and there exists this this huge chasm between what we understand uh sort of about our conscious minds uh through language and then between that and all the way down to you know our genetics and our biology and and where between that is this unconscious or the psyche or these things. So, again, um, I was seen in Carl Jung and these other and these other things that I was looking at, as well as com- the sciences of complexity, um, which had, were, is analogous in a way that there is this rich world that we had not touched yet. We were, we were only beginning to really just just discover it. And so at that point, I was sold. And then that segued into the literature of psychedelics, mm-hmm. which was yet another. Uh, window into that, yeah. right? And certainly the content, you you know, you read the works of uh, people like Stanislav Grof, who was one of the early researchers, and did sessions with, psychedelic sessions with literally thousands of patients and has an enormous body of work, um, documented uh, reports of what they experienced. And that content, sure enough, it, 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 it fit with dreams and mm-hmm. and and to some degree the content of psychosis although it's a big mistake to equate those two mm-hmm. we can talk about that a little bit too 
So I was sold that psychedelics was yet another fascinating window into all of this. And yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we can touch on that. What do you mean by they're different with psychosis versus... Um, right. And like who, who seems to be most expressing that, that misunderstanding? Yeah. Right. So probably the first person to systematically really start looking at characterizing and describing altered states, a variety of altered states, is William James. Mm -hmm. He wrote his book, uh, Varieties of, I forget the name of that, Varieties of Religious Experience or something. Yeah, I think that's right. But um, back in the early days of psychedelics, it wasn't assumed that there were numerous or, or several altered states, and there wasn't any big effort to characterize those altered states. So when psychedelics came on the scene, you had the uh, the people like you know Aldous, not Aldous actually, but um, Albert Hoffman, who mm-hmm. identified the chemicals early LSD, on, like yeah. LSD, and um, ultimately I think uh, synthesized and isolated psilocybin. And they would they they basically packaged that stuff and sent it out to psychiatrists all over the world and said, hey, this is an interesting potential. And they didn't know what to call it, so they called mm-hmm. it an investigational drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they because of the effects that it seemed to have, they they their first thought was this is a psychotomimetic. Mm-hmm. So this is a substance that mimics the psychotic state. And you know, given what they had to work with at the time, that wasn't a that wasn't a bad assumption. It's just that it it immediately put it into a box. Mm-hmm. And then over the over those years of the investigation, other people came along and said, no, just try to introduce new terms. And when they realized that it wasn't the same, um, even the term hallucination, hallucinogens is really very misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something like perhaps hallucinations in psychedelics, but it's probably really more like illusions. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's much more complicated than, than just simply hallucinations. And there's other very distinct differences. But so people started to come up with new terminology to capture uh, the essence of what that the subjective experience is, the phenomenology of psychedelics. Then words like psychedelic came out, and that was, again, a very it has baggage now, mm-hmm. but it was a, really a great term. And, and you may know that the, the roots of that, what that means is mind manifesting. Mm-hmm. Um, other terms were psycholytic, mm-hmm. so um, Loosening of the psych, loosening of the mind. Another great term, really very um, well thought out. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so there's several of them. Now, to, now, nowadays, you have things like entheogens, mm-hmm. which is sort of divine or God engendering. That carries some baggage with it, so right. we have to be careful with that term. So there's no ideal term to capture what the phenomenology is. But for example, it doesn't seem that the phenomenology of psychedelics has to do with Delusions, for example, mm-hmm. people who are on psychedelics do not have delusions. They're they're actually well oriented. Mm-hmm. They they don't have false beliefs. They're experiencing these visual and these really very synesthetic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so multisensorial and very fluid and very dynamic and very synesthetic. And also very ineffable, and this is one of the terms yeah. that the modern studies are. The modern studies are doing a good job of trying to come up with language, language to capture mm-hmm. the phenomenology, and that has to be done. Yeah. So that we're not just equating it to psychosis. So when you think about psychosis, the probably the worst thing about psychosis is is that the patient doesn't, to some degree, lacks insight. Mm-hmm that they have false beliefs, that they don't really, they've really lost touch. They're, they're cut off mm-hmm. from, they're cut off from reality. And that's in some ways antithetical to what psychedelics are doing and where people feel uh, more in touch with yeah. 
more insight, not less insightful, but more insightful, more aware of their inner dynamics, more aware of their issues. So, so there's some very there's some very distinct differences, and some of those differences are the most important differences, really. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Just touching on that real fast, one that was kind of one of the points that really helped change my mindset towards this. So, in psych, we have to do that spam presentation where you have to pick a topic in psychology and then do kind of a like a presentation on it. And mine was on psychedelics assisted therapy, and that was one of the studies that blew my mind. And it's a pretty recent one. They tried to mimic. I guess, uh, I'm not sure if it was Timothy Leary who kind of did the preliminary study, but they tried to mimic it and then basically it was kind of like a, not an interpretation, but almost like a a replication of a religious experience. Mm -hmm. So they basically took never users of some sort of psychedelic and they gave them, it was a crossover study, so they either gave them like methylphenidate to kind of give them the, the, not placebo, but the... Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the word. The um, control. control. There we go. Control. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a long day. I'm on nights too. So. <laughs> oh, and then they did. They switched over to I think it was psilocybin, and they then gave them kind of a series of questionnaires and asked them to rate their experiences. And I think it was like 55 percent of the users found that that single experience was in the top five experiences of their mm-hmm. lives, which included mm-hmm. the birth of a child, the death of a significant other or mm-hmm. parents or something like that. So obviously there's a very, very significant amount of meaning that's being drawn mm-hmm. from these. It's not just, you know, random images and uh, sensations that yeah. are coming into this. But And, and that, and that and you say the word meaning, and, and this kind of gets it, I think, where we have a big blind spot mm-hmm. in, in the neurosciences and, and the sciences in general, in that we do, don't talk, we, we like to think of the brain. We, when we talk about the brain, we use, we use uh, computer metaphors right mm-hmm. well, but largely and and that's okay it, it it'll take us so far and then that will start to limit us mm-hmm. um and we talk about information and we like to equate and to ask questions about how many bits of information can the brain store and how fast can it process information and we're stuck on we all kind of assume that that's the right metaphor we have this wetware computer that mm-hmm. we're working with that's a, a limiting paradigm so to speak and there's a wonderful researcher on the West Coast. I'm not sure if he's even still alive anymore. He may have passed away, but his name is um, Walter Freeman, not to be confused with, I think, an econo- famous economist or something. Yeah. But, uh, and he was a, a very broadly educated neuroscientist and very much um, schooled in the, in the co- sciences of complexity as well as uh, neuroscience in general. And he said some. He said a provocative thing. He said that the brain doesn't really deal in information; it deals in meaning, mm-hmm. which is a little kind of cryptic, um, mm-hmm. but also kind of gets you thinking. And 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 it and you start to then ask yourself, well, what what is meaning versus information? So this brings up a whole host of questions. And and I'm not sure I was going there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going I'm to lose my train of thought. I'm sure on this, but I think he was onto something. Yeah, I really do. And again, I think that's sort of when we talk about the paradigm that the sciences at large work in right now mm-hmm. and sort of these blind spots, we don't appreciate fully. We, we, don't, we honestly don't know how the brain works. In, in some of the most important ways, we do not understand how the brain works. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we make a lot of assumptions about it. And we don't. And then there's the big question of consciousness, right, which has almost, right. almost been relegated to, to philosophy yeah, at this point. Right. Um, that's not completely inappropriate, but we still are faced with the hard problem of consciousness, what they call the hard problem of consciousness. And I think in order to 
get a hold of that. And I don't think science can ignore it. I think we have to really tackle that one. Uh, I think it was time to th- it's time to think outside the box a little bit yeah. and get a little bit away from the extrication with the computer metaphors. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's ironic because I want to say it's outdated, but yet the metaphor was made to be current with the times and our technology that we use today. But mm-hmm. exactly how you were explaining that there needs to be a recognition of the past in our understanding of the brain as in how it evolutionarily developed, how you know, history and philosophy and these disciplines that have been mm. around forever are all contributing to the brain's function and development. And it's almost like myopic of us to just refer to a technological metaphor when there's so much more than technology that relates to the brain and the human psyche. Yeah. It's one of the reasons this sort of this this chasm I'm referring to referring to where it seems like well on the one hand we have, we have two choices we were faced with these fascinating phenomena with these patients telling us that they're having these experiences that are so meaningful and so important and so sort of mystical it seems like we have this choice between thinking about the brain in terms in this experience in terms of a wetware computer and on the other hand talking about mystical experiences mm-hmm. and having to resort to you know language that uh, belongs in the in the realm of spirituality and and I to me there's nothing wrong with that I think you have to be careful you have to um, if you're if you want to stay within the realm of science you and I and you have to you have to come up with you have to expand the scientific paradigm. You can't leave it behind and then just mm-hmm. jump onto religion to try to explain what's happening with mm-hmm. a with a with a substance. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why early on I was so taken by the sciences of complexity because they seem to they seem to f- with a tremendous amount of facility fill that chasm mm-hmm. to some degree. And it's not an easy language to use and to talk. It's a very complicated subject. But it seems to get at, there seems to be some analogy between uh, sort of the sciences of complexity and nonlinear systems, something that are so difficult to study with, our, with, moder- with, with traditional scientific tools. In a way, that's somewhat analogous to the unconscious. We talk about the unconscious, but we can't really, it seems to be in a black box. Mm-hmm. The world of, of uh, chaotic dynamics and, and complexity was really also hidden from us until, ironically, computers let us see it. Mm-hmm. And this is the whole story of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Benoit Mandelbrot and the Mandelbrot set. No. no, I don't think so. So he he sort of discovered this realm, right, this sort of this uh, realm of dynamics. Uh, he, he, had a, he had a small equation. This is sort of the essence of, of nonlinearity, that you can have a very small, simple equation, algorithm that can create enormous, rich complexity. Mm-hmm. So he had this equation, and he was running it on this old computer, this old, you know, by today's standards, antiquated computer, and he was just plotting the the output of the of of uh, endless inter- iterations of this of this uh, of this equation, and he was very patient, and he um, kind of let the thing run longer than he had ever let it run before, and to his astonishment, he, what he expected to see was complete randomness, mm-hmm. and that's all that anyone had seen with plotting these sorts of of, of equations, but. Uh, he stuck with it long enough, and he actually started to see in his graph, he started to see these patterns emerging. Hmm. And then these patterns emerged, and then they started to show uh, scale-free phenomena where the same patterns was, would become nested within each other, almost infinitely nested within each other. In, in the Mandelbrot set, there's this little snowman uh, motif 
that then repeats itself across scale and just somewhat endlessly, sort of like the number pi, mm-hmm. it, it, it can repeat itself but never completely, never mm-hmm. exactly repeats itself. And nowadays with modern computers, you can l- look these things up and you can kind of see the graphics on these things and they're just mind-blowing, they're incredible. So this whole order was just discovered as haphazardly as that. Mm-hmm. And again, ironically by a computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we opened up this big black box of dynamics and it just seems natural that all of the other stuff that we're sort of blind to, like the inner workings of evolution, uh, and whether it's embryology or, mm-hmm. or species evolution, or the complexities of what the brain's doing, it's, it's a very compelling argument that this, this science of, of chaos and complexity holds at least part of the key to that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been the, the assumption that I've worked on all along. And then, and then psychedelics segues naturally into that in that it opens up that unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, the phenomena, the visual phenomena of uh, psychedelics seems to fit very well with these very complex dynamics and these forms and these topologies that come out of complexity theory. And uh, it's just a, there's something going on there. Yeah. yeah. Well, cycling back to something that you said earlier, so you kind of discussed a little bit about the psychedelics and how they even those can be compartmentalized into almost different subclasses and things like that. Is there any particular that you're most optimistic in terms of its therapeutic benefits? Or? Well, so you can carve them up a number of different ways. One of the more important ways to carve them up um, is, to, is to talk about the tryptamine. Um, I hate to use the word hallucinogens. I think we've mm-hmm. got to get rid of that word. But we'll, so we'll say the tryptamine psychedelics. From the uh, from the phenethyl from phenethylamines, mm-hmm. so those are two broad classes of psychedelics. And then beyond that, then you you have things like um, MDMA. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditionally, LSD, psilocybin, uh, ibogaine, mm-hmm. and then DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, are all tryptamine hallucinogens. And what that means is that there's a there's a core a uh, chemical structure to that it's called uh, an indole an indole group mm-hmm. and which seems to be the 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 most active part of the molecules with DMT and psilocybin that's that's almost the entire molecule is the indole group this mm-hmm. it's a six a combination of a six carbon ring and a five carbon ring with an amino group and then a hydroxy group and some other things LSD's that plus a whole larger structure right. but mm-hmm. so I not that they're more important than the phenethylamines mm-hmm. or mescaline obviously it was a very important one mm-hmm. too but from the standpoint of what's most promising they're um those are the ones that create when we think of as the psychedelic experience so do other substances so do mescaline so do these um the terpenes mm-hmm. and, the, and the mm-hmm. example of a terpene is uh, salvia divinorum okay but with some uh, some drawbacks, the uh, the mescaline, mescaline, for example, is an extremely difficult experience, mm-hmm. um, very uncomfortable, more side effects. The terpenes and the, and the uh, are tend to be very dissociative, mm-hmm. um, so they can be actually some pretty pretty dangerous substances, like true dissociatives, like yeah. where people really lose control. The the tryptamine hallucinogens tend to be the more cl- the classic psychedelic phenomenology, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this. Um, Without, certainly with side effects, and it's not necessarily an easy experience, but probably it's the easiest. And then out of those, you have these, uh, psilocybin is very appealing because it, it only lasts about six to eight hours. I say only, but right. if you're talking <laughs> about LSD, you're talking about eight to 12 hours. Oh. 
so just from a practical standpoint, uh, as we look f- into the future of actually making these things um, FDA-approved treatments, those are very real practical considerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have people, clinicians, who are going to be involved in this, and you know, you're going to spend 12 hours, you're going to spend an entire day and a half right. <laughs> work day right. with one patient. Right. So psilocybin seems to be the sweet spot right now mm-hmm. because you have DMT, dimethyltryptamine, NN-dimethyltryptamine, which is a very brief experience, um, maybe 15 minutes. But it's almost, that's almost its drawback. It's a very intense and a very brief experience, and so intense and so brief that people sometimes struggle to uh, integrate, the, integrate the content of the experience back. So for the time being, psilocybin seems to be the most useful in that regard. Uh, they're all qualitatively different. If you look at the phenomenology, you read the literature, they all are somewhat qualitatively different. So they're all different substances, but... And that may be it, too. When people describe these substances, people will say that psilocybin is, is very psychological mm-hmm. uh, versus dimethyltryptamine, which is very, very otherworldly, mm-hmm. very much like you're being taken off the planet. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, all kinds of really fascinating phenomenology, but maybe difficult sometimes to integrate into mm-hmm. experience. Fascinating in its own right. Right. Yeah. In terms of yeah. treating people with psychological disorders. Maybe less so. Yeah, less so. That's all really, really interesting. I'm curious about more so what you meant with these drugs allowing patients to integrate their psychedelic experiences into their own lives and healing processes. Can you talk to what that application of the experience looks like in treating these patients, how that fits into their improvement in their mental health disorders? Right. So so the, the key the key to the experience is that it's um it's it's extremely dynamic. It's, and it's very malleable. Mm-hmm. So we talk about set and setting. So set refers to the mindset of the person going into the experience. And the mindset will dramatically uh, affect what happens in the trip, Right. as will the setting. So during the trip, the, the subject is exquisitely sensitive to what's happening in their environment. And very small things will become amplified and distorted. And if it starts off as something somewhat negative stimulus, then it can amplify into something extremely negative mm-hmm. and vice versa. If it's a calming, soothing environment, then, then it'll go in that direction. And it's not that the experience should necessarily be pleasant all the time because some of the most rewarding and insight and greatest insights and growth come out of the more difficult aspects of the experience. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the idea of the dissolution of the ego. Mm-hmm. It's one of the major phenomena that occurs or can occur. So, but the mindset is also about the intent. So that's the idea of the preparatory sessions is to say, well, where are you at in your life? What issues are you dealing with? What symptoms do you have? What questions do you have? You know, where, what are your goals? What are your barriers? You know, you just like you would normally do with psychotherapy. And you get all of that very much present in the person's mind. And then they even start to think about some goals, as you would with goals in psychotherapy. What do you, what, it's very important to have goals in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just right. kind of spin your wheels. So you do all that. And then going into the experience, then that stuff will then tend to take front stage. Uh, if not immediately, then at some point during the, during the trip. Mm-hmm. And then because the experience can be so bizarre and so ineffable and so f- fast-moving, somewhat analogous to a dream, mm-hmm. right? It can be very difficult, even you know, a vivid dream, to remember it and bring it back because the transitions in the dream are so rapid 
and so inexplicably bizarre sometimes, these, these leaps that are made, right? And the same thing can happen in the psychedelic experience. Um, and there's a bit of a literature on the analogy between dreams and dreams in the psychedelic state. Um, and so th to the extent then that after the, the experience is over, you can remember those experiences and those insights, then you can then start to work on those. And they can be um, very, they can be very profound. They can be, there seems to be a facility with psychedelics where a topic that might otherwise be very hard to examine, mm -hmm. some self-examination that might be particularly painful, uh, is less painful uh, during the psychedelic experience, or at least comes more easily. And then once that that's come up, and perhaps then it's also expressed itself in some visual experience or some even a, even some sensory experience or it comes up as some sort of metaphor or something then you've got something very tangible it's almost like it's almost like a dreaming awake mm -hmm. right. so in a dream dreams can be uh if you kind of you know buy into that you know that inter dream interpretation dreams can i do to, if it's done right dreams can be extremely powerful in their ability to draw connections between things. Mm -hmm. And they come out in the form of sort of metaphors or symbols and make, you make connections that you didn't previously see, or you see a new context. Mm -hmm. Getting back to meaning, everything, there's always a figure and a ground to any topic. And uh, the figure, if you change the ground, then the figure changes and, and, and you understand a problem in a different way mm -hmm. with different connections. So, and that's what the integration process is after that, is just trying to process all that stuff and kind of wrap your head around it. I see. Yeah. So this has kind of generated a couple of questions. Yeah, uh, so many, so you, many yeah. interesting things you just talked about. So I think we'll start with this one first, Kay. So this is, again, drawing on that experience with my spam presentation that we had to give for uh, psychedelics. Afterwards, you have kind of an uh, evaluation session, and the two evaluators actually uh, shared how they had had kind of an end-of-one experience with their own patients. And so I'm curious as to... I, I can share this story real fast because I thought it was kind of interesting, kind of humorous. One of the, the physicians, the attendings, said, yeah, you know, I had had a patient who was borderline. I'd been working with him for years. Um, you know, he had just displayed like catastrophizing behavior, black and white thinking, uh, very just all the typical symptoms for a borderline patient and hadn't really shown much progress. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere one weekend, he came in and said, hey doc, I'm cured. Like I've, I figured it out. I've you know figured out all my problems. And uh, obviously the physician did his due diligence, went through and worked with him, but it, it, it legitimately seemed like things had improved where he was starting to recognize his own errors and kind of changing his behaviors. And when he asked him what was the cause, like what triggered it, he said, well, me and some friends, you know, we went out this weekend, we dropped some acid, watched Lord of the Rings, and then went out in the woods. <laughs> and all of a sudden he realized, okay, I'm, you know, seeing all the mistakes in my life where, you know, I had been doing X, Y, and Z and not taking responsibility for yada, yada, yada. And so I'm curious as to if, if you've heard of other uh, maybe anecdotal evidence or, or if you've seen that in other patients or... Um, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, so I mean, we're starting to see more of this, right? So we're starting to see patients coming in who are who are offering these, you know, saying this is uh, I've done this, you know, mm -hmm. it's 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 the topic is out there more. Mm -hmm. um, people are talking about it more. Patients are and having these experiences, and then they're coming in, and I think they're a little more willing to talk about it now yeah. since right. it's being studied. It's in the 
So I've got a few myself. I've got patients that have come in and shared these experiences. And uh, of course, we have to then let them know right off the bat, you know, we don't condone this. You shouldn't, you know, you right. shouldn't just go out and do this willy nilly. And we have to really, we couch the whole language in the, in the language of harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can be useful to them mm-hmm. in saying, um, you know, what dangers they're, they might be putting themselves in. And, and then we can also just kind of educate them on, on, on where we're at with our knowledge of these substances and that sort of thing without promoting the use of it. Right, right. right. But yeah, so I, yeah, I've had a couple of people who have come in, and I got to be careful about what I share, sure, obviously, yeah, yeah. because of HIPAA and all that. But um, I can say very generally that one or two patients have had some some pretty transformative experiences and feel good about it. I feel like I feel like it was a turning point to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to varying degrees. Um, I've also got some some uh, some of the older Vietnam era yeah. who who it's come up, and you know, back in the day they did it. But again. There was so much recreational use at that time mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of them, that was the context in which they did it, and they didn't really take much away from it. Yeah. And similarly, as I was growing up, and when I was in my 20s and early 30s and I was reading the, in uh, this literature, I had friends you know, who would say, yeah, I experimented with LSD, and I did this and I did that. And I don't recall them talking about any epiphanies. Yeah. It was all cool. It was so mm-hmm. wild. The colors were just amazing, you know, this kind of thing. Right. But that speaks to the how important it is that for it to really be a clinical tool, mm-hmm. you have to do it with the proper rest, yeah. set, setting, proper preparation. Right. Uh, the priming yeah. that goes into yeah. it and then the it, integration and, that comes and, after. And that's not to say that people who do it, quote unquote, recreationally, aren't getting something valuable out of it. People yeah. do that recreationally and then will also say, like, you know, whatever, I watched Lord of the Rings, I went out <laughs> yeah. in the woods, and, and it was, was the most, and it was, and it was just beautiful. Yeah. You know, and it ch- completely changed the way I look at the woods, for example. Right. Mm. Well, there's nothing, that's great, you know, yeah. that's fine. I mean, that's not, you know. As psychiatrists, we can't be the ones saying go out there if you, you know. But, right, uh, right. <laughs> but there's, so there's I a. I to gain a lot from that woods yeah. trip. <laughs> but that's no. what's. Uh, but that's then going to be something we're going to face going into the future is mm-hmm. this idea that there's, um, you know, the studying psychedelics for the treatment of psychopathology, but people are already asking the questions well, what about psych- psychedelics just for betterment? Mm-hmm. You know, improvement of quality of life, you know, sort of going from okay to better, sort of yeah. that, that kind of paradigm. And it's another big question we're going to have to ask ourselves, especially as clinicians. Yeah, definitely. Can I follow up with one more question? Sorry, yeah. because this was uh, something that we kind of touched on as well. So you kind of talked a little bit about the mechanisms that are maybe at play. You talked a little bit about like the dissociation of the ego, but then you also hinted at this idea of almost creating like almost like an extended or improved neuroplasticity where there's just tons of connections that are Mm -hmm. happening at the same time where we're you know almost seeing it from new perspectives do you what's your I'm, i'm curious as to what the feeling is as to the actual mechanism of action i know there's probably no right answer for this because right. right now we just don't know but maybe yeah. you can kind of no that's right the, the answer is the answer is we don't know we have some we have some intriguing pathways mm-hmm. and i can kind of only you know parrot you know or, or, or highlight on the ones that i think are the most compelling mm-hmm. but obviously we just don't know but um and then there's my own sort of hunches yeah. that, again, go back to sort of the sciences of complexity. I think that's where, to me, that if I had to bet on a horse, that's that's what I would bet in terms of being the most, inf- you know, mm-hmm. revealing thing ultimately. 
But the the work out of uh, Imperial College uh, with Car- uh, Robert Carhart Harris mm-hmm. and his uh, his mentor David Nutt, they have been the ones who have most really looked at what's happening with the, with these big networks. So we're we're at, we're in a phase in neuroscience where we're only relatively recently really identifying all these these major networks and really appreciating. Uh, the potential clinical relevance of those networks. So you might you might run across and discover these networks and then find that they don't really have much relevance to yeah. psych, psychology. But in fact, they seem that it seems that they do. Mm-hmm. And we could not have taken this for granted. So this is one of the exciting things about psychiatry now is now we have a neuroscience that seems to be bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. And so you've heard, you've heard the term default mode network, yeah. for example, yeah. and the, you know and. So maybe the, just for our yeah, listeners who are not sure. from, familiar with it, maybe you can explain that a little bit. As best as I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm a bit of yeah. an amateur on that, all that myself. Yeah. Um, so one of these, there's all these, there's quite a few of these large-scale networks in the brain, and um, one of them has been identified as the default mode network, and it's got a couple of major hubs in the front and in the back of the brain and some other kind of branches off of that. And it's best. It's been characterized as the word "default" is probably a good word because it's the it's the it's the network that's sort of fired up when we're not doing anything, right. when we're sort of at rest, when we're not involved in a very specific task. This is the network. People talk about it as what you're doing when you're just kind of daydreaming or ruminating mm-hmm. or reflecting. You're sort of um, you're sort of in yourself in the sense that you're reflecting on yourself and your identity and mm-hmm. your life, and um, planning for the future, uh, regretting the past, thinking mm-hmm. about the past, evaluating yourself and the world and your place in the world. So, people have somewhat uh, maybe provocatively, but also very interestingly, have said, "Well, maybe we have found sort of one correlate to the ego." Mm-hmm. Um, which I think has some weight to it, actually. Mm-hmm. So, and what's fascinating about these networks is that they can be, um, it's not just a hodgepodge mess of them all firing at the same time, but for example, the default mode network and then this other network, the task-oriented network, I don't know if that's exactly the right term, but the word task is in there, and when you're involved in a specific task, that network fires up and it's anti-correlated with the default mode network. Mm-hmm. So as that fires up, the default mode network calms down mm-hmm. and vice versa so they they're not mutually they can't yeah. they can't work together one has to quiet down for the other one to mm-hmm. and this is and it makes sense intuitively because you know we tell people who are really struggling and ruminating with depression and and, and spending too much time in their own heads so to speak you know we advise them go you know go do something you know go get involved in an activity that's constructive and it'll pull you out of yourself. We leave, we all, we've used language like that all along, right? Mm-hmm. And in essence, that seems to be what may be happening. When people go delve in, in a positive, constructive way in some task, it literally pulls them out of their ego. Yeah. And then hearkening back to what I, I said about societal psychopathology, I think that a simple one way of characterizing you know, our society's larger psychopathology is not just alienation, but it's excessive ego. And you can look on this on you can look at this topic and this idea on varying time scales. So you can look at it in the time scale of hundreds of years and the industrial revolution and and science and technology and how the ego and logic has all kind of reigned supreme. But you can take the story back much farther and you can take it all the way back to the uh, to the dawn of language, right? And mm-hmm. written language and the written word. 
and how that changed society. And at various steps along the way of the evolution of societies, people in different ways were pulled more and more out of something that would sort of be the antithesis of ego. So something more, it's kind of a yin-yang thing, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. something, uh, uh, there's, a great, there's a great book by a fascinating individual, Ralph Abraham. He wrote a book called, that captures this mm -hmm. global pattern. And he calls it, the book is entitled Chaos, Gaia, and Eros. Hmm. And Eros is sort of the thing that we have been pulled out of. It's sort of, um, if you want to, um, um, or I have that, may have that flipped around, actually. Chaos would be the thing that we're pulled out of. Chaos hmm. is sort of characterized, if you look at the root of the word chaos, it's the void. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the unformed, inchoate void, sort of, but also the fertile ground of all things mm -hmm. in, a, in a mythological mm -hmm. sense. Not, what, uh, not our modern-day notion of what chaos is, which is kind of randomness and disorder, but something much, much, more, much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. So perhaps there's an aspect of mind, the unconscious, that is more a deeper, more generative, um, more fertile, more natural, cyclical, dynamic aspect of ourselves that we've been slowly pulled out of throughout history and we've built up this incredibly uh, powerful ego structure. But what the ego has that is, can be pathological is a rigidity mm -hmm. and a stasis mm -hmm. and uh, a momentum about it that can be hard to break. And that, to me, sort of characterizes very broadly the, the psychopathology of our, of, our, of our world is we have people who have these very, are very stuck. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the word. When you look at psychopathology, if there's one common feature, maybe even including psychosis, it's stuck. Mm -hmm. The system is stuck mm -hmm. in some sort of repetitive, in the language of complexity and dynamics, it's an overly simplistic cycle that has very limited storage capacity for information, is very insensitive to input mm -hmm. of information and is inflexible and not adaptable. Now, these sound, this sounds very psychological, but mm -hmm. this is the language of the sciences of complexity uh, versus, versus quasi-chaotic systems have a, an amazing storage capacity for information. They are exquisitely sensitive to small inputs of information. They are highly adaptable, meaning that a chaotic system has the ability to flip out of that system into another system, another another dynamical system. So that, as you could see how that might lend itself to healthy psychology, right? Mm -hmm. And it might also explain how our minds even work in a normal state. So that was, yeah, no. that was segueing <laughs> off of the concept of ego. And uh, I might have, might have lost the question. No, that, some that, was, too as well. that was good. Um, maybe we can uh, transition. We have a list of questions yeah, that we wanted to sure. get to. So. so on the topic of psychedelics we understand that there are currently a lot of popular voices suggesting that psychedelics are going to move or shake the world of psychology in a stepwise fashion compared to the normal slower linear growth so analogous examples of this might be laparoscopic surgery for medicine or pcr for medicine etc do you agree or disagree with these opinions? I think I agree with the spirit of that. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, I agree with that. Okay. Um, I, these are kind of heady times right now. I mean, right. because uh, 
because of the way the media has, is not in a bad way, but the way the media has kind of shown an interest in this. And I think also because of the nature of the, of the topic. It is very compelling. Mm-hmm. And, and it crosses an awful lot of, uh, um, it crosses into a lot of different disciplines and topics. So, the, you know, psychedelics is a multifaceted sort of little diamond, and, and, and there's so many segue, so many ways into it. Because of that, it is very exciting, and it is, um, it really is something, it's not new, obviously, because we've rediscovered it, but right. uh, we buried it for a while. But I would agree that, you know, qualitatively, it's it, it's different than anything we have. It certainly is, in the very truest sense of the word, a true synergy of pharmacology and and, and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And one aspect of that synergy is not more important than the other. They are equally important. And it's not just mashing them together and saying, well, we'll, we'll give you an SSRI because that'll calm you down and help you do therapy. So that's kind of an additive thing. Uh, maybe, somewhat, maybe somewhat synergistic, but this takes right. it to a whole different level. And, and people, again, make provocative statements like, you know, one psychedelic session is the same as 20 years of psychoanalysis or yeah, comments I've, like I've this. Yeah, I've heard that before, too. I, I imagine this, might, this must drive the trained psychoanalysis nuts to hear this. I, I kind, of right. feel, kind of feel bad for them. But, but, tell them. but I, you know what? The way I look at it is um, it's really complementary to things like uh, the old psychodynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old psychodynamic methods that were kind of forgotten by, mm-hmm. by the majority of psychiatry and left behind which I think is a pity because mm-hmm. they were such rich traditions and they were so fascinating. And they really were grounded in, in the information that patients were giving clinicians back at that time. They were, they were very grounded in what was coming up and they were dealing with it. They were very open-minded, I think, in, in ways, to the extent that they didn't get lost in their individual dogmas, which mm-hmm. in some ways they did. But, but this really kind of brings it back to life, in my opinion. And, um, it is, an, it is a synergy, and uh, I think psychiatrists and psychologists and any therapists and counselors can really embrace this and see it as an advancement for their respective disciplines. Mm-hmm. That's my feeling about it. Yeah, I definitely think that all these clinicians need to recognize the enormous benefit that psychedelics can bring to their work as clinicians. So with that said, we're wondering what role specifically you see psychedelics playing in the treatment and management of health of mental health issues within the next few decades. And I know we've touched upon this in earlier conversations, but we're curious about how you think these treatments will further come into play in mm. hospital and private practice settings right. as well. Yeah, how do they get rolled out into kind of the actual practical application? Yeah, well, the rollouts, kind of the 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 that's kind of started in a way, at least the, the beginnings of that, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a big logistical, mm-hmm. um, it's, not, it's not like, you know, decriminalizing cannabis and mm-hmm. making it recreational or something. This is the medicalization of something, which comes with a whole infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it does appear that as, whether it's psilocybin or MDMA, as they become FDA approved in the next several years, there is, it is going to come with a structure to it. It's going to come with an infrastructure. I don't know how political that will be. Hopefully it won't be political in any kind of ugly way, but obviously there's going to be sort of centralized players in all this who are mm-hmm. sort of saying this is how 
this is how we're going to roll this out. This is this is the credentialing you need. This is the mm-hmm. training you need. Um, all this kind of has to, that's begun to a certain extent, but it all kind of has to be worked out. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's one thing to have an interest in psychedelics and talk about, talk about it in an academic way. It's a whole other thing to be a clinician mm-hmm. who is going to prescribe this to somebody. Yeah. And that right. really, that being a psychiatrist, that has forced me, because I had my initial interest in, in this, I, when, I, when I was initially interested, I was not a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Right? I, was in, I was an English major. Then mm-hmm. I was a social worker who was interested in this. Now I'm a psychiatrist who's interested in this. And the idea of uh, prescribing this is sort of a daunting idea, mm-hmm. the responsibility involved with that. When you, pers- when you select a patient and say, I think you could benefit from this, and when you say that, you know that they could go into an experience that could involve very intense experiences of, you know, uh, very vivid, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, very visceral experiences of mm-hmm. ego death, mm-hmm. to potentially terrifying experiences. Yeah. That's not easy to send somebody into that, Yeah, right. you know? You have to really have a tremendous confidence that they're going to be okay, that they can, mm-hmm. they can handle it, that it's not going to... Make the, all these questions that the skeptics ask are great questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, why wouldn't this cause somebody be, to be crazy? Why wouldn't it destabilize somebody? Why would, why would having these experiences not destabilize somebody's psyche rather than help it heal? Mm-hmm. Very important questions. And it's, it's upon us, the people who are interested in this and believe in it as a potential therapy, is upon us to really answer those questions with some good answers. Mm-hmm. And it's, these are, again, tough questions. Why is something that is seemingly acutely destabilizing and somewhat chaotic, mm-hmm. how does that then translate into healing? Now, mm-hmm. I think I kind of understand that question from my larger perspective and my larger interest, because to mm-hmm. me that makes sense. Right. To me it makes sense that, but that's my own particular sort of view on, on psychopathology and mood disorders and neuroses and all this, is that it's a phenomenon of being stuck in this, and when you're mm-hmm. stuck in an overly simplistic dynamic, something has to kind of be broken up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that notion is foreign to modern psychiatry. And to some extent, well, maybe, I mean, it's actually, there's probably some analogies in other areas in medicine where you have to break something up in order for it, in order for it to heal. Mm-hmm. The simplest one may be re-breaking a bone, for example. Um, like embolizing a mass, like literally breaking yeah, it up. Yeah. Well, even if you think about infl- the process of inflammation, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, if you if you think about inflammation with the, with the metaphor of a construction site, you have uh, you have a building that is sick or is somehow you know needs to be updated or something, and and when the construction crews come in with their heavy equipment and they make a mess, yeah. and that's what the immune system does. It comes into a to a wound and it makes an absolute mess. It's like a construction site. Mm-hmm. And it's chaotic, but there, therein is therein lies the process of healing, true healing, right. mm-hmm. true healing, not just symptom management. Like putting on a band-aid. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of a natural. That's one of the most natural ways to explain why to people mm-hmm. why psychedelics. Uh, maybe the analogy, that analogy, that it's it's not just symptom management; it's healing. Getting to the root cause. It's it's healing, and it's it's getting to the root cause, and it's healing in the way that healing happens in the body mm-hmm. through a chaotic mm-hmm. and and temporarily seemingly destructive process. Something something grows out of that. That's 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 new. So, 
So well, that's a great analogy. Yeah, no, it really is. Along that lines, what are maybe some of the risks that are needing to be considered? Maybe what are some of also the common myths that people don't or need to understand? Yeah, so certainly, again, the thing that gives me pause, if I'm going to be the one with the prescription pad saying go to this clinic, I have to be 100% or as close to 100% right. as I can get sure that I don't have somebody with an occult or a, uh, a predisposition to a psychosis or a mania that I'm going to be the one that triggers that with this, uh, with this therapy. The, the older that the, the, old, the, 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 old, the initial phase of research back in the 60s and 70s, certainly they worried about that. They probably were not as cautious in selecting patients as I think we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in, the, in modern studies, if you've got a family history of a psychosis or mania, you're not going to be a subject in these studies. Mm-hmm. People just are not going to go there. Mm-hmm. But the reassuring thing, and maybe in terms of speaking to dispelling myths, is that in, uh, in all those studies, literally thousands of studies done in that era, at least by the report, there were vanishingly few instances of triggering long-term psychotic disorders from the experience of psychedelics. So it doesn't, at least looking at the, the older literature, um, it doesn't seem, that concern doesn't seem to bear itself out. Although I would going forward for the foreseeable future, I would err on the side of caution or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I would just, I would not ever be willing to, and no one will be willing to treat somebody who's got, seems to have a strong predisposition or possibility of Mm -hmm. uh, having a psychotic disorder. Yeah. So what are some other criteria that you think must be assessed when when a clinician must decide if a psychedelic treatment is appropriate. You mentioned the risk of psychosis, but say you're looking at like two patients, both of whom have had PTSD for like 10 years and they're of similar age and something like that scenario. How do you decide if those two patients or one patient is a better fit for the therapy or not? I don't know that I fully wrapped my head around that question yet, but I do think a lot about it. Um, I think myself, I think everyone who ultimately may get involved in uh, in psychedelic therapy in the future, are, are, we're, I, think, I think we'll be pretty conservative mm-hmm. and cautious. And I think the things we'll be looking for are somebody who is, man, how should we couch these terms? It's, it's sort of like, um, there's this kind of a saying, I think, in, 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 uh, in the psychedelic um, world that you know, you talk about, you know, should kids, you know, mess around with psychedelics? And mm-hmm. um, people will tend to say things like, well, you know, before you go dissolving your ego structure, you have to form an ego structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have a patient who has a psychopathology where they've got a very fragile mm-hmm. ego structure and they're well along in their life and it doesn't look like they ever will really have that stability, like really healthy coping mechanisms or the potential for healthy coping mechanisms, or the potential to have a, um, a healthy ego. If you don't see that potential there, I don't know if you want to mess around with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. That's that um, yeah. I think you need somebody who has a baseline, who has a who has a pretty uh, has the a fairly relatively healthy baseline that mm-hmm. they can uh, work from, sort of as a platform. I see. Yeah. So assessing that primarily. Yeah, because it's, again, back to this idea that something comes apart during the therapy. Mm-hmm. You're going to take it apart. It's got to come back together. Right, and it needs to be there well put to begin with. Right, yeah. There's enough. There's too much uh, too much um, disorder in, in the system already. Mm-hmm. You can't expect it to snap back to 
an improved order. Right, right. I mean, you can, but 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 not if it's too far gone, kind of so to speak. I guess yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Transitioning just a little bit. So it's my understanding that, well, just talking on PTSD, right? I feel like that's like a a very uh, it's a great application but it's just right here in the forefront like obviously it's a, a huge issue in our country right now but it's also been my understanding that it's a little bit difficult to get studies for example at the VA like that just seems like the perfect patient population mm-hmm. for trials and stuff like that is that correct or am, is that kind of a myth that I've been hearing or is that the difficulty of doing the research mm-hmm. at the VA yeah. no I don't think it's a myth I think they, you know so Rick Doblin who, mm-hmm. who founded MAPS which is the pro, the main organization that that's going after um, treating PTSD mm-hmm. he's over the decades the past decades has 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 um, spoken to people in the DOD and, mm-hmm. and, and veterans department um, to try to to try to get something started and and uh, I think over the years he was frustrated mm-hmm. with that. So there's a, it's understandable. It's a federal. It's it's a schedule one substance. Right. It's a federal. We're talking about a federal inst- a federal institution. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, there's um, it's partly probably the amount of bureaucracy that would go mm-hmm. into it would be even more. I think that's been one of the barriers. Okay. So the the, the bureaucratic hurdles to just doing it at a private institution are, are bad enough, mm-hmm. but add in add into that the federal right. layer of bureaucracy, and I think people are just it's just daunting. Yeah. yeah. And then there's sort of there is a built-in sort of conservativeness and cautiousness in the VA system. So right. so it hasn't happened on mm-hmm. research has not happened on VA turf yet, but researchers who have appointments at both in private institutions and VAs are have done the research just not on on VA turf. So okay. But I I think there's there's hope for that to change. I think that you know the mm-hmm. the VA um we just they're kind of bringing up the rear a little bit on the whole sure. topic, but there's no there's no reason why at some point uh, the VA might not decide to get involved. Yeah, you know, I think that, again it's just sort of a slower process. Yeah, it, it's a healthy caution for sure. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, well, we are just about out of time. I feel like we have so many more questions though, yeah, so maybe definitely. we could we could do a part two of this. Oh, yeah, for, I'd love to to talk about some of the other modalities. Yeah, and maybe the. Um, research and development currently yeah. on the topic since I think Johns Hopkins Medical School just opened a whole new center devoted right. to psychedelics research, which I'm sure could be a whole other part of a separate podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot to be talking about. And that's about. fair. That's fairly fresh news for me too. So I don't know mm-hmm. a whole lot about it. It was okay. it was pretty exciting to hear that, mm-hmm. um, especially right. at a big at an institution like Johns Hopkins. So. Right. Right. It's nice to know that there's that, that, that funding source out there that cares enough about this that they're going to, you know, we're not going to have big pharma mm-hmm. to fund yeah. this stuff. So yeah. it's got to, where's think, the money going to come from? Yeah, I yeah. think the center was mainly funded by private donors, mm-hmm. which I think speaks volumes to the fact that individual people and families and organizations are so invested in learning more about what psychedelics can do for mental health. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We're 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 getting out of the era of stigma very mm-hmm. rapidly, and um, it's in society at large is this is resonating with them that right. something this maybe has something that's qualitatively different about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really cool. Yeah, yeah. maybe uh, just a couple of quick closing questions. Absolutely. Yeah, and maybe we can tie this back to your role as a psychiatrist. What mm-hmm. advice would you give to medical students or residents who are curious about pursuing a career in psychiatry and maybe even more specific to that uh, in pursuing a career that's 
um, working with these new developing therapies and modalities? Yeah, and not easy advice to give. Be, uh, easier than it was maybe 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago, where, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in residency, I would have said, I don't know if that'll ever happen. But <laughs> now it's a different story. And it seems to be, it seems like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we're entering phase three clinical trials. Um, and with a very, very, very much positive support from the FDA with breakthrough status mm-hmm. and these sorts of things. So I think it's going to happen. Then it'll all be, from the standpoint of advising people going into psychiatry, you can certainly say that it'll likely be a tool out there. The mm-hmm. question is, what role will they play? Mm-hmm. And what would that role really look like? Because, um, you know, I don't know. You, let's say you have, a, uh, you have a clinic. That clinic will have a medical director, most likely. Mm-hmm. And then it'll have its therapists. And, yeah, there will, you know, so I don't know that it may not be easy for a psychiatrist to be on a routine basis sitting with a patient for mm-hmm. six hours. Right. But maybe that's okay. Maybe they, maybe they do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they are part of the, certainly part of the evaluation process, the s- diagnosis process, selecting the right patient. So the psychiatrists will be, t- if they want to be intimately involved in this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I mean, my advice in general about psychiatry is it's, we're entering a very exciting time. And uh, it's a great time to get into psychiatry, not just because of psychedelics, but because of the advances in neuroscience, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and how that's using the the new neuroscience uh, to answer some really important questions. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely actually want to follow up on that because that's one of the the ones that we want to talk about. Sure. Definitely lots of questions and arenas open up with this new research and questions to be answered. And I think, you know, like spanning back to the beginning of our interview, how this really all has great significant ties to um, human development and what it means, what the human condition means and our lived experiences. And even if we're not, you know, diagnosed with a mental health condition specifically, but also need room for growth on, you know, a more personal level and, you know, psychiatry's developments, I think, could really help with all those things. We have to heal ourselves we have to heal society we have to heal the planet right it's a lot of healing that's happened yeah definitely last two questions if individuals are interested to find out more uh, information what sites or books or sources do you recommend yeah if you it's not hard if you get into even one or two of the classic books probably actually probably the quickest way is if you get into one of the more modern texts not text, but um, one of the more modern books. Uh, there's some good ones on the history of uh, the history of psychedelia, the history of the psychedelic movement. Um, I confuse the names all the time, but one is the um, there's one that's called Ecstasy that may be more about M- the story of MDMA. But there's mm-hmm. another one. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. Okay. But even Michael Pollan's book. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure if you go through the yeah, the if you go through the references in, the, in that book. Most of the classics are going to be in there. Yeah, okay. uh, all you know, all of the main figures are going to be in there. If they're not explicitly in the book, they'll be in the bibliography, mm-hmm. and you can just start there okay. and just pick out the major works. People like Stanislav Grof and Ralph Metzner, and many others. Yeah, many others. Mm-hmm. And then, any uh, last words for our listeners? Anything you want to share or anything like that? <laughs> no, I think I've already said it. I think okay. I think uh, it's an exciting time for psychiatry. Okay. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Well, cool. We uh, we definitely want to thank you for being here. This was awesome. This was really cool. Really thank fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. something we were very excited to have.
and me me as well and it's been my pleasure yeah all right thank you thanks thanks for listening to this episode this wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners please rate review and subscribe we appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast to support us go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes links and information about our guests we are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.